The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please follow in your Bible. I'm reading in Matthew chapter 7. We've been progressing through the Sermon on the Mount, as it is called. Three full chapters, the longest consecutive teaching section of Jesus in the Gospels. Something we've dealt with before in past years, but so valuable it's always worth retracing. I expect we'll finish chapter 7 and the Sermon on the Mount in July and pass on to something I'm already planning in the Old Testament, but we'll get to that when we get to it. Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read the first six verses. These are familiar words, familiar images. You need to bear down sometimes and think carefully about that which is well known as to whether you've really plumbed the depths of it. Listen to God's Word. Jesus is the one speaking. Judge not that you be not judged, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the Word of God. Today we'd have to say that the critic is king. Anyone in the society who has a negative word to devalue something, to tell you its problems, has their say and welcome. I I can remember when I first heard talk radio. I specifically can remember. It was in 1970. I had moved to the Boston area, and uh, one of the big TV or radio stations in Boston was given over entirely in the evenings to talk radio about sports. I didn't know anything about the Celtics or the Bruins or the Patriots. I soon learned to love the Red Sox. But uh, I was amazed because I had not experienced prior to that time just entire hours of programming with nothing but somebody calling in, giving their expert opinions. I don't know why the Bruins, you know, paid a manager or a coach because there were all these thousands of people that knew exactly what they should do. All they had to do was do what the thousands of people said and they would have won the Stanley Cup every year. All these experts who in no uncertain terms could tell the whole public what was wrong with the sports teams of their area. 
Well, that has overflowed into many areas of society, as you well know today. The critic is king. There were some words I picked up from a Bible commentator, an old Scotsman, Alexander McLaren, wrote this almost 150 years ago. He was speaking about Christianity and biblical commentary, but his comment applies more broadly. He said, The race of fault finders is ever in our midst. They are blind as moles to applaud beauty or goodness, but they possess the eyes of a lynx to spot any hint of failure as they pounce upon others' faults. They act like carrion flies buzzing with sickening hums of satisfaction around any visible human wound. The critic is king. We're looking at a text today that's talking about discernment, criticism, and discerning what is wrong with things that other people might be teaching or doing, but doing that in a very particular way. Chapter 7 of Matthew might appear to you to be just a series of half a dozen or more paragraphs not particularly related to one another. And you might think, well, these are just sort of little moral issues that Jesus didn't pick up on in the earlier chapters, so he's tacking them on here. But let me tell you that the common thread in chapter 7 is a Christian's relationships. Our relationships to people who are teaching and living in error, to people who are brothers and sisters in Christ, who are outcasts from the church or from the gospel. But the common thread is relationships in this chapter. And so we pick up in the initial thoughts of Jesus talking about the judgments that we make and that we cast upon other people. We have all kinds of opinions about how people are living, what they are pronouncing to be right or true, whether it corresponds with the things of God or not. And the point of this chapter is to try to make us as believers in Christ to know that we live all the time under the all-seeing eye of God, and that we are accountable ultimately to him. We will be judged by him, in fact, by Jesus Christ, who will be the judge at the final day, the Scripture says. We need to be conscious of that all the time. Otherwise, we can easily go about ourselves and assume, I'm the judge. I've got a Bible in my hand. I'm equipped to judge just about anything and know what's right and what's wrong and and give my opinions that draw an X through some people and cast them aside and accept others. Well, as you do those kinds of things, one of the things Jesus is asking here is that you might hold it in your mind that a holy God has an opinion about you, and his opinion about you will be exercised at the final day. And unless you come with the shield of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed, counted to your account, standing in your stead, God's opinion about you will not be one that you want to face. Our text here is about a Christian's discernment towards other people. How can we show wise thinking and dealing with other people in light of what God has done for us and what he is to us. First of all, we start with something 
often misinterpreted, the the very opening words here in verses 1 and 2. And we must tell you what it does not mean when Jesus says, do not judge, for you will be judged with the same way in which you judge others, you will be judged. Here is this first point, the difference between condemnation, judgment of condemnation, and a judgment of Christian discernment. They are different. We've all had people probably sometime or other uh, challenge us and say, you have no right to judge me. One of my favorite stories about the late Dr. Billy Graham is told many times about how Billy, Billy loved to play golf, and once he was invited to join three men to make a golf foursome, and he didn't know two of the other men. One was a friend who invited him, so they cert- the other men certainly knew who Billy Graham was, and they played golf and uh, had pleasant discussions and just about ordinary things. Uh, they didn't get around to talking about the gospel or the Bible or anything like that. But at the end of the golf match, uh, the end of the 18 holes, two of the men, the two who didn't know Dr. Graham before or had never seen him before, stalked off to the clubhouse, and the one man was quite angry. And he said, I don't need Billy Graham telling me what to do. Well, the fact of the matter was, Billy Graham had not said anything about what this man should do, about his life, about his behavior, about his conversation, or anything. He was just happened to be Billy Graham. And the fact of who he was playing golf with this man incited this man to an angry rejection. Isn't this true that people will react to a Christian this way sometimes? We, We don't make any particular pronouncements or act in any way that that should make them feel we're judging them, and yet they're ready for us. I don't need you to tell me what's right and wrong. I don't need your bigoted Christianity. Well, what was Jesus saying here? If he was saying that there was never a right time to make any kind of a discerning decision about someone's behavior or morality or doctrine, that we should never, ever even think anything negative about someone, how do you explain verse 6 of this passage where he labels some people as dogs and pigs? This is a little bit of a strange passage if you think Jesus, in his words, judge not, is saying all manner of discriminating decisions or drawing of lines in morality or doctrine are ruled out. How in the world would he call somebody a dog or a pig? That word judge not cannot possibly mean from Jesus. Turn a blind eye to all faults of others. Don't expect to uh, speak about morality or doctrine with other people. If we would just substitute another word that some of the English translations do use, I think it works better. I'm a little surprised, frankly, that the English Standard Version doesn't use the word, do not condemn. That's the meaning. Do not condemn lest you be condemned by the same standard. We can and we must use discretion, study biblical opinions and and doctrines and advice from Christ and the apostles in the Word of God, but we are not called upon to issue condemnations based on someone's moral or doctrinal behavior. We are not 
to put ourselves in the place of God, imagining that we can pronounce someone's final destiny. Now, we certainly look about, and we might have a conversation with another Christian and talk about my unsaved friend. And you might have very good reason to think that friend is unsaved. They've never made a profession of faith. They get angry about Christianity. They don't worship and, and you just draw the conclusion they are unsaved. And if, if they do not come to Christ, if they do not bow their life to him, they will go into eternity in a position of dire consequence. It's not wrong to make that conclusion that someone appears to be unsaved, but be careful that you're not putting yourself on God's judgment throne where only he belongs. An example of what I'm talking about is in Luke 9. 54, Jesus was there with James and John. They went to a Samaritan town. They were just passing through on the way to some other place. And uh, the people of that town did not respond to the teaching and, and uh, ministry of Christ. They basically spurned him and turned their backs on him. And James and John were angry. They were jealous on Jesus' behalf. And they came to him and said, Lord, shouldn't we call down fire on these people from heaven to destroy them? And Jesus firmly rebuked that. He said, no, you have no business doing that. You have overstepped your limited authority as a disciple, assuming you are the dispensers of God's wrath or God's grace. It is not your role to write off other sinners and permanently say, God has no use for them. There must be, of course there must be, legitimate, moral discernment, doctrinal discernment that draws lines between right and wrong, between error and truth, between blasphemy and blessing. And we need that discernment, that rational development to look at things and take the Scripture and apply it to what people are doing. You know, take, for example, the, the whole thing today. Of course, there are all kinds of people out there some of them seminary graduates, some of them preachers in pulpits who will say, well, the Bible doesn't have anything to say about homosexuality. As a matter of fact, Jesus was neutral about the subject. Well, into that Bible that you think is so neutral, please read Romans chapter 1. You don't need Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't need anything else. Read Romans chapter 1. Read Romans chapter 1 and tell me that the Bible does not find homosexual behavior, an offense in the eyes of God. Absolutely no question whatsoever about it. When man stops worshiping the eternal God, he begins to worship the creature with his flesh and turns to what Romans 1 calls the unnatural use of their bodies. That's there. I'm not departing on another subject right now. It's just an example there it is. We have to draw that line. We have to be discerning about that doctrinally and morally. But, now here's the difficulty. Do we take the next step and say anyone who is involved in same-sex attraction, the very sin that Romans 1 is talking about, is, is therefore a hopeless, wasted human being to be put on the trash pile and condemned forever? Absolutely not. That's the problem, folks. That's the problem. Mingling condemnation of the person with condemnation of the sin lets us assume that we are in God's place of final judgment. When, as we know, it was mentioned in our Sunday school class this morning, 
uh, Rosaria Butterfield's book that many of you know, the, uh, oh, what is it, the, uh, something about a surprising conversion. I can't think of the exact title, but it's just a riveting book of a woman who would have defended homosexual practice to the nth degree, a highly respected woman, highly educated, Ph.D., lovely woman. I met her a couple, weeks, a couple months ago, quite a few months ago, actually. Uh, and uh, here she was, you know, defending things that the Bible said this is an offense to God. So someone probably concluded, well, don't put any hope in her ever seeing eternity. Don't put any hope in her ever being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, long and short answer is she is a wonderful disciple of Jesus Christ today because some Christians were able to have discernment about the difference between her sin and her as a possible subject of God's saving grace, which indeed came about in her life. In Matthew 10:16, Jesus urged disciples to be shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. Be wise about the things in this world. He also told leaders of churches to exercise discipline. You can't exercise discipline without drawing moral and doctrinal lines and saying, this is wrong, my brother. No, you can't defend abandoning your wife. You can't offend, uh, defend your adultery. You must call it what it is and repent from it. And elders must be careful and, and prayerful in doing those things as they do what 1 Thessalonians 5 says, proving all things, testing all spirits. And uh, we must do it in a particular spirit that Galatians says, considering yourself lest you be overbearing and you yourself be tempted by the very weakness that you're dealing with. And so judge not when Jesus said it. didn't mean don't be discriminating about doctrine or morality. You need discernment. You need careful examination. You need to be positive about what the Bible's positive about and negative about what it's negative about. But also judge yourself, first of all, lest you be condemned with the kind of standard that you are applying to others because there's a final day coming when you will have nothing to defend you except the mighty righteousness of Jesus Christ. You in yourself will be defenseless. Christ will be your defense, I hope. The second part of our text, verses 3 to 5 here, then urge believers then to consider discernment about the faults of fellow believers in particular, not just people in general, but believers. And, and here it starts with this famous analogy out of the carpentry shop. Remember all the years Jesus spent with a plane and a chisel and a mallet in his hand. He knew carpentry shops, and you can think that he knew where this analogy came from. Why do you look at a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, your brother, that's what's important, and pay no attention to the plank or log or beam, whatever you want to read, in your own eye? Was there ever a more ludicrous word picture than that? You know, we all know what it's like to have just the tiniest speck in our eye. Your eye is the most sensitive part of your body. My wife wore contact lenses for many years, so she's able to put things in and out of her eyes and throw eye drops in there and do all kinds of things. I can't have anything touch my eye. And she has to put the drops in, and I'm fighting her the whole way. I'm going, 
And she's trying to get that drop in. I say, it didn't go in. It ran down my face. Because your eye is so sensitive. It doesn't want to be touched by anything. And here's Jesus saying, you're like a person with a log sticking out of your eye. How ludicrous. And yet, how aptly descriptive that is. We can't even see this about ourselves. It's not just a speck about us. It's something huge. But we can't see it. We're so busy judging and condemning other people. If we would discern sin the way God sees it and discerns it, we must start with our own. Every Christian has to examine the flaws of other believers only after considering their own. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.31 said, If we would judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. You remember the famous incident, of course, of David. David the king, in a time of security and power, his borders were peaceful, his kingdom was in good order, there were no wars going on, and David was lolling at the palace when maybe he ought to have been out doing something more constructive, but he looked upon Bathsheba, another man's wife, desired her, took her for his own, and you remember the whole sorry mess. He had Uriah put at the front line where he was killed, and David thought, ah, it's good to be king. Until he went to worship one Sunday or one Sabbath day, and the preacher started meddling. As Nathan the prophet told about a rich man who had many flocks and herds, stealing the one sheep of a poor man, and David must have risen off his throne and said, what a despicable thing. I can't imagine. Is there someone in this kingdom I have to come down on about that? Show me where he is. I'll take care of him. And Nathan said, you are the man, O king. And bless God, Instead of defending himself or arguing, David said, that's right, I've got a big log stuck in my eye. Have mercy on me, O God. I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. You see, Matthew 7, 5 didn't have Jesus simply saying to us, mind your own business, don't ever be concerned about the sins of fellow believers. It actually assumes that we would be involved in another believer who has a problem and needs to be approached. And in fact, Matthew 18, in this same gospel, has the rhetoric of approach to go and gently but firmly confront a brother, tell him what he seems to have done that is significant, and seek a solution, and do that in a gentle and loving spirit, speaking the truth in love. It assumes we will do that, but it assumes we will do that aware that we are lumber carriers. And we've got all kinds of lumber stuck in our own eyes that has to be looked at before we look at somebody else's speck. There was an early church preacher, first few centuries of the Christian church. His name, he went by the Latin name Chrysostom. Chrysostom said, by all means, correct your brother. But never do it as his foe or his adversary. Rather, do it as his physician, providing the medicine of grace to heal and restore. But then in the third place today, as we finish with this text, we look at verse 6, and it's really kind of odd how verse 6, even as I look at the column in my Bible, verse 6 is, starts a new paragraph. It, it isn't continuous with the preceding five verses. 
as if it was set off to kind of depart into a new subject. But we think it belongs with verses 1 through 5 because here is the need to show discernment in how we act with unbelievers, particularly the adamant, angry unbeliever. If you're a pet lover, you need to know that when the New Testament talks about dogs, it is not talking about your furry canine friend who lives at your house that's named, you know, what, Fluffy or Fifi or something like that. Dogs in the New Testament were wild animals. They traveled in packs. They were more like wolves roaming the streets, scavenging for any food, dead animal bodies, even dead human bodies. Dogs were to be avoided. They carried diseases. They might well turn upon you. They might well harm a child. And, of course, a pig was an unclean animal. So it was really pretty extreme for Jesus, of all people, who's just said, don't try to exercise a final judgment of condemnation on somebody, to now say there are people who are dogs and pigs. Sounds like he's doing exactly what he said not to do. But he must be talking about some particular people, and we think what he's talking about is that unbeliever who has had the gospel made known to him as a pearl. That's elsewhere. The gospel is called a pearl of greatest price. And he has rejected it, and he has angrily responded to it, and he is calloused and resistant. And the minute he hears anybody talking about Christ or the cross or the gospel or the, the good news or heaven or hell, he says, don't come to me with that stuff. I don't want to hear it. He has spurned the message time after time. And Jesus seems to be saying here that there is a time when you must act with an unbeliever in accord with his rejection if it has become firm and determined and repetitive. An example would be the way Jesus himself acted just near the end of his ministry when those last trials he, he went through before the cross. One of them, it wasn't a real trial, it was a hearing really with Herod the Great. Herod had always wanted to have an interview with Jesus. I can't go over everything about Herod, but you remember he was half Jewish He was appointed to have a certain realm of power in Palestine over the Jews, cooperating with Rome, really selling out to Rome completely. He was an Idumean, a mongrel race, a man that was not a pure child of Israel. He knew the Scriptures. He knew the Old Testament prophets, and he wiped his feet on it and lived for his own advantage. And he would have done anything to deny the laws of Israel and the revelation of God. Christ was taken before him. You remember that? And Herod started to ask him questions, and it says Jesus would not answer him. He made no response to Herod, and his silence was eloquent. It seemed clear that he was saying, I have nothing to say to you. You who have rejected the revelation of God, you who have played with and mocked the word of God, I have nothing to say to you. You see a similar thing in Acts 18.6, a time in Paul's presentation of the gospel when he came to Corinth and there preached at the synagogue and, and all he got was disputation, rejection, mockery, argument. And Paul wasn't just showing his temper when he responded to those people. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of responsibility for you. From now on I will preach to the Gentiles 
of this place only, and he did. He left their synagogue and would not return. Now, the big question is, how do we know when somebody has gone this far? It seemed that Jesus knew it about Herod, and Paul knew it correctly about those Corinthian uh, synagogue goers. How do we know? Because we almost all have somebody in our life like this, somebody who has refuted the gospel, who, just like the Billy Graham, all you have to do is come around and, and be a Christian, maybe wear a little cross around your neck or something, and, and it will set them off. And you say, well, how do I know when what they need is simply for me to be quiet or me to stop presenting the gospel to them? Well, I honestly have no simple definition for that. I think it's something you should decide, perhaps based in consultation with wise and mature Christians. Share that with a couple counselors, with an elder, with a pastor, with someone who could hear the situation and perhaps advise you. But there are times, there are times when you should probably say, the best thing I can do right now is just be who I am before God and not press anything with this person. Amazingly, God has brought some such people to himself in wonderful ways in time past. And so the one thing I would say to you is do not stop praying for such a person. You may even need to stop witness, but you don't have to stop praying for such a person. Two extremes are ruled out today in summary. One, we must not be simpletons full of naive optimism. Jesus says, use your mind Use the Scripture to become discerning and to understand the difference between morality and immorality, right doctrine and wrong doctrine. Be discerning. Have a discerning kind of insight informed by the Word. And secondly, don't be so defeated by the evil in other people's lives that you are cynical and jaded and just ready to condemn left and right individuals who aren't accepting the gospel yet. Don't quickly draw a conclusion to reject someone. Be careful of your tendency to despise some people because maybe their behavior, maybe their immorality is totally offensive to you. And you're right to be offended, perhaps, by it. But you're wrong to throw the person away. Do you see that difference? It's always right to pray for the person, to believe that that person might yet be affected by the grace of God and the the arresting behavior of the Holy Spirit to change them, to turn them around in their tracks and to come to them with a confrontation of, of Christ that would be eternal in its effect. The great factor that differentiates God's redeemed people from all others is that we walk always, every day, in a constant consciousness of our eternal destiny and that we will survive that judgment of eternity because of Christ and no other reason. And others will not survive it because they do not have Christ. That knowledge should certainly compel us and affect how we, how we deal with other people. But I call you to the discernment of Christ that does not call you to a condemnation and rejection of anyone because until that final day, God and God alone knows the sentence that he has on that soul. Allow the ultimate decision and eternal destiny to rest with him. That's where it belongs.
Our Father, I ask that you make us wise people, discerning people. There's so much heresy. There's so much immorality. People telling us that immorality is just a matter of choice, that it doesn't matter, that the Bible doesn't speak about it. And they're wrong. But help us in the midst of this chaotic world where standards are all turned inside out to be lovers of people the way Jesus was and haters of what is false and heretical and against your word. Teach us that difficult line to walk, O oh God, day by day. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.